Hey everybody, Leah Slaughter. I hope you are doing great on this Thursday afternoon. I am excited to bring you some of the updates with what we have seen going on, not only in the market with evictions, but also with some of the laws and the different things that we see in the pipeline that could potentially bring some great news for landlords under these CDC moratoriums. So I am very, very happy to say that Daniel Paz is here with me today. And we didn't market that much because I wasn't sure if he was gonna be able to join us, but very, very excited to have you here, Daniel. You are such a wealth of knowledge and I appreciate you taking this time to sit with us and go through some of the updates and things that we're seeing happening in the courts right now. You're very welcome. I'm happy to speak with you guys. I always enjoy it. Me too. Me too. So for those of you who don't know, I actually met Daniel Paz. I am the vice chair of the property management and leasing committee, and he comes on frequently and is speaking about all sorts of things to do over the last few years as it pertains to evictions and the moratorium and all this type of stuff. And so that's how I originally met Daniel and we, we really hit it off and he's just been fantastic. So if you need any type of legal services, anything to do as a landlord or anything related to tenancy, he's just great. Um, I've actually used him on personal stuff as well. So before we kind of break into our topic today, as always, I want to go over a couple of things. Number one, since Daniel's here today, it's important that I tell you, Daniel is giving us his guidance and his experience as an attorney, but not as your or my attorney. He's here to give us information, give us background, give us opinions, but he's not representing you in any capacity. So I wanna make sure I get that out there before we begin. In addition to that, everything that I'm gonna talk about today is my best guidance and judgment based on years of experience, not only owning a property management firm, but also as an investor and investor operator myself. We're one tool in your toolbox. I say this a lot. I'm super happy to have Daniel another tool in your toolbox here today, but any investment does come with risk and we always wanna make sure that you consult those in your life you trust to help you on your investment journey. And we are proud and blessed to be one of those tools in that box that you have access to. And of course, if you have any questions after this class, as always, you can reach out by email, you can give us a call. I'll put all the contact information for Daniel at the end as well, and we'll be more than happy to answer that. But as we go, you can also put your questions in the question box and we will get to those as we move forward. So Daniel, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice before we get started. Uh, yes, uh, I am a solo practitioner. Uh, I practice law in the uh, DFW North Texas region. Uh, I've been practicing landlord tenant law for going on 20 years this November. And I represent, you know, landlords, property management companies, uh, you know, property owners uh, in any sort of dispute that they typically have, uh, whether it be with a tenant, uh, such as what we're discussing today, or disputes with vendors, uh, disputes with the city, uh, disputes with neighbors. Uh, whatever it has to do from a litigation standpoint, uh, meaning that the parties have an issue that needs to be resolved through the legal system, uh, I can assist uh, those property owners, landlords, uh, and owners. Uh, and that includes eviction cases, includes security deposit disputes, uh, disputes regarding habitability of the property, uh, as well as what I believe to be the next big you know, wave to be coming down here in a few months, uh, bankruptcies. Uh, yep. I help tenants, uh, landlords deal with tenants who have filed bankruptcy who sought that protection as well. Uh, so if you have a need uh, for a litigation attorney uh, as a property owner, uh, landlord, or management company, you know, I'm you know, more than likely able to help you. Just reach out to me. Uh, as we said, I'm not establishing an attorney-client relationship right now by this presentation, 
uh, that would have to be done individually. Uh, and I'm happy to speak with you about your legal issue as needed. Uh, just contact me by either phone or email, and I'll be happy to do that for you. And then one thing I do want to address as well. So we cover about 70% of Texas. So can you just take a moment and tell us what your service area is that you can offer for our clients? Uh, at this point, uh, the North Texas area is my primary area, uh, meaning that I cover as far south on a regular basis as McLennan County down in Waco, uh, as far north as Grayson County, uh, which is in Sherman, and to the east, I uh, go out to uh, uh, Smith County and Tyler, and to the west uh, as far as Weatherford uh, out that way. Now, because of the climate that we're in, uh, in which a lot of hearings are being done via Zoom, and over the internet, I've actually been able to expand my practice a little bit, and I now have a client base in the Austin, you know, Travis County uh, area, as well as in the Houston area, uh, Harris County, and those surrounding counties. Uh, so if you have a need, have properties in those areas, uh, reach out to me, and I can help you. And if I can't, uh, I do have contacts with other attorneys who do similar work as I in each of those uh, metroplex areas. You in the right direction. Uh, but now, with like I said, the current technology and courts doing Zoom hearings for the most part, uh, I'm able to you know, sit in my office here in Dallas and attend hearings in Austin and Houston uh, as well. Uh, so don't feel uh, limited by my primary area of practice. Uh, I'm able to help you uh, as needed uh, in other areas of parts of the state of Texas. Perfect. I appreciate it, Daniel. Of course, obviously, our, our goal and our hope is to never need you. And I'm I'm proud That's to it. say that through all of COVID, I think we only had to involve attorneys in three total tenancies, which given everything going on, those numbers are pretty phenomenal. So we've been real, real blessed. But uh, it's always great to, to have someone we can count on. And of course, as we're making LLCs and doing all those types of things as well, it's great to have someone who's versed in landlord law. So as always, you can go to our Facebook to see upcoming events. I'm gonna show you a couple of the classes that we have upcoming in the next 30 days. We've got some big ones coming up. And I always warn you guys when they're a big one because you know they're gonna run past an hour. And so remember when you register for one of the classes, you can either attend it live, ask questions, interact, or you can just register and it will email you a link to go watch it after the fact. Or of course, you'll be able to find that on our website. You can go under media and you'll find all of our past classes. We typically keep about two years up there at a time. Or of course, you can go to any of our social accounts and be able to find us there or our YouTube channel or podcast that has audio for your drive of any of the webinars that you wanna go back and listen to again. So June 16th at 2.30 Central, we're gonna talk about buying property through your retirement. We're gonna talk about IRA lending. We're gonna talk about what a self-directed IRA is. We're gonna talk about how all of that works and how you can follow the same model to build your retirement account. Of course, it can't be cash flow to your living expenses every month. However, it's a great way to build your retirement and a way to get a higher return in your retirement than perhaps what you're seeing otherwise. And certainly with the upcoming volatility we all expect with the stock market. And then after that, July 21st, we are gonna look at a major market comparison. I talk a lot about the Houston market. I talk a lot about Dallas. We're gonna look at the different major markets in DFW and how they fared through COVID, how they're continuing their growth, how home sales and rents are doing, and also make some projections of what we expect over the next five to 10 years. So that'll be a great one. Now, let's start with a little bit of a background on what the CDC moratorium is. 
And for those of you that really don't understand what we're talking about, let me break it down to how all this started. So you know that we had virtually a complete halt on evictions for a beginning period of time at the beginning of COVID. And then as that kind of nationwide stopgap went away, we then had some counties and some local areas, but then also some types of mortgages, like backed mortgages, federally backed mortgages, who put limitations on the ability to evict. And as those things started to wane, what we found was that this CDC moratorium came into existence. And the goal of this moratorium and the way that they worded what they did was essentially that you should not be able to evict someone if it's going to cause an increase in housing density and therefore a higher risk of spread of the virus. And so they created this form that tenants can submit. And I'm going to talk a little bit about what the different qualifications of that form are. But essentially, it was a way to allow people to stay in their homes, not pay rent, but not forgive the rent. So Daniel, tell us a little bit of the background of some of the qualifications for if someone wanted to claim this CDC moratorium as it began. Uh, yes, uh, the CDC eviction moratorium, uh, unlike the CARES Act uh, that first came into play, isn't what they call automatic in the sense that a tenant had to take some affirmative step to get protected, to become a covered person as they use in the CDC uh, moratorium. And in order to become a CDC covered person, they had to submit what they called a CDC declaration. Uh, and that CD declaration you know, could easily be found on the website from the CDC uh, here in Texas. Courts started sending those out to tenants as part of eviction cases. Uh, but basically, it gave a opportunity for a person, tenant, to make certain allegations as to why they should be a covered person. And there was really five basic elements to that. Uh, and they would attest to these under the penalty of perjury. And they would say that they used their best efforts to obtain all available government housing assistance or for rent. Uh, so that was the first allegation they would make. Uh, the second allegation, uh, as here on the slide, was that they made less than $99,000 annually if they were an individual, uh, or it was 198000 if they were a joint couple, uh, or they received a actual a check from the CARES Act. If they did that, uh, then they were uh, entitled to uh, protections. That's element number two. Uh, number three, they had to show that they were unable to pay rent due to the pandemic, uh, whether that was a loss of, of employment, a loss of hours, uh, an increase in medical expenses that became extraordinary. Uh, uh, that all affected their ability to pay the rent. Uh, they had to make that declaration. Uh, and then fourth, they had to have used best efforts to make partial payments. Uh, partial payments meaning anything from half of the rent to less than half. Uh, it was one of those things about being a litigator in court. Uh, it, attorneys could fight all day about what is you know, the best efforts to make a partial payment. And then finally, fifth, they had to uh, allege that they would be homeless or that they'd have to live in a community environment uh, and thereby increase the you know, population density of the community and increase the risk of COVID being spread. Uh, so that was kind of what they were required to do. It was called a CDC declaration, and they would provide that to you as a landlord. Uh, now, there wasn't an official form, so to speak, but the CDC did 
propagate a form that could be used and could be found on the internet. Yeah, and there's there's a few thoughts about the moratorium when it first came out that really for states like Texas were negative. Number one, the minimum income threshold. You know, that income threshold for California was closer to your poverty line or your inability to sustain a property line. But when you look at $100,000 in income or $99,000 in income here in North Texas, that's a very, very high income. And so it triggered a lot of people to qualify based on that in our market that potentially did not really truly have a hardship. So what happened in the beginning when courts started hearing cases and this moratorium came into effect, what we as property managers started doing with the guidance, of course, of our attorneys is we started challenging those orders. And for the first month or two, it really went fantastic. We were challenging the orders. We were winning the vast majority of those cases. And the reason why is because the ones that we challenged, the tenants had not paid a dime. And so when we look at that requirement to do the partial payments, there's this question, right, of, of what you were just mentioning, Daniel, what is a partial payment? Well, zero is obviously not one. And most of the courts, and especially in our outlying suburb counties, they were very amendable to that and they had no problem ruling in our favor. Now we had a few of them that did stays or they just postponed the case to see what happened. And then what we found as things progressed, what happened is our state eventually came down and said that the courts were no longer going to hear these challenges, which when that happened, and Daniel, I'll let you go a little more in depth about this, but what happened is that everyone thought this was really good. And so I had a lot of people calling me and even property managers that I see out there talking about how great this was that we don't have to challenge it anymore, we can just move forward. But what people failed to understand is that by not having the court hear it and rule on the validity of it, the responsibility now fell back on the landlord and back on the property manager. And you know, generally, we don't worry too much about that. We do our best judgment, we make our best guidance. And you know, if you make a bad decision based on the information you have, it's the right decision. Generally, you can defend that. Well, unfortunately, with this moratorium, there are pretty significant penalties for making a bad judgment. And by not having the court hear those cases and make a determination on those cases, if a landlord were to have misstepped and removed someone by challenging one of these who then could come back and sue or claim that they did in fact qualify and it was wrongful, at that point, we have quite a problem. And so Daniel, can you tell me a little bit about kind of what happened a few weeks ago that really changed our ability with these CDC moratoriums? Uh, well, this has all been you no know, changing daily, it seemed like. And yeah. as you mentioned, when this first came out back in September, you know, the Supreme Court from Texas came out and said, okay, we have the CDC eviction moratorium at the federal level. You know, it does allow us at a state court level to continue with evictions, but we need to come up with a process. And that process, as you described, was you as a landlord had a right to challenge a CDC declaration. You're entitled to have a hearing in front of a uh, judge at the JP court level and determine whether or not those five allegations they made were valid. Uh, and as you correctly pointed out, one of the big areas to attack in those CDC declarations was whether or not they had made a good or used their best efforts to make a partial payment. Uh, so that was you know, excellent because it gave you an avenue because one of the very first questions that came out was, well, how do we know this is valid? You know, there's no court hearing, there's no review. So this gave you that process. 
which was great. And throughout the course of the months, they continue to modify that requirement. You know, y'all may recall y'all required to make certain allegations and eviction petitions as to whether or not y'all received a CDC declaration and whether you gave a three-day or a 30-day notice and all those type of things. Uh, however, as this continued, uh, the Supreme Court of Texas made a decision uh, that we're not going to be involved in this issue anymore. Uh, this is a federal court issue uh, as to whether or not these are valid declarations. So they allowed you know, their order, which had governed it, to expire on March 31st this year, 2021. So as of April 1st of 2021, uh, that you know stripped the justice courts of power, authority, jurisdiction, as some refer to it as, to hear any sort of challenge to a CDC declaration. It stripped them of the ability to abate cases, which was what was happening a lot of times prior to that. Uh, you would show up to your, your eviction court with your case, and the judge says, we've got a CDC declaration here. We're going to abate it until it expires, which at this point, the expiration date is June 30th of 2021. Uh, so when the Supreme Court allowed that order to expire, that kind of opened up the eviction floodgate, so to speak, in that uh, all the backlog of cases that were at the justice court level were to be set for trial. And the courts went a couple different ways about doing it. And you may have seen this in your property management, is that some courts would automatically set them for trial and say, okay, here's your new trial date. We're going forward because we can't abate these anymore. Other courts set them for what they call status conference hearings, in which they would ask both parties to show up, and you, as the plaintiff, would have to announce to the court whether or not you wanted to proceed with the uh, eviction because of the expiration of the order, or whether or not you wanted to just wait until June 30th, 2021, to continue. Okay, uh, so cases started being set left and right, and the dockets got really, really full because they had all these cases in in the backlog, uh, and plus all the new cases that were being filed because, as you mentioned, when that first came out of this news, everyone thought, oh, great, we get to go file our evictions. The CDC eviction moratorium doesn't apply in Texas. We get to get rid of all the tenants that aren't paying rent, and that's not the case. Uh, the CDC eviction moratorium is still applicable in Texas, and we'll discuss that issue in a little bit later as to whether or not it's still valid uh, based on some court challenges. But as of now, you know, the CDC is still enforceable. And you'll see when you go to court that all the judges now have a little warning that they give you as a landlord. They will advise you that, you know, uh, the CDC eviction moratorium is still out there, uh, that if you violate it, you could be subject to penalties uh, and fines and possible imprisonment. And they'll advise you that we're not going to stop you. It's up to you. You now have the burden. Uh, or responsibility to determine whether or not this is a valid uh, CDC declaration. And so the courts have kind of stepped back at the state court level and said, we're going to let you landlord do what you want to do. Okay. Uh, which brings me to a point that I want to make that was a big misunderstanding initially when this came out is what does it actually prohibit? You know, uh, what does it mean to evict? Uh, and when you think of evict, you think, does that include the entire process of eviction? Does it include me giving a notice to vacate? Uh, does it include me giving a lawsuit filing, serving with a citation? And what has been clarified over the months 
and I believe it was always the case, and I advise my clients of so, is that you, even if you have a CDC declaration, aren't halted by your from proceeding with your eviction. Meaning you can give your notices to vacate, you can file your evictions, you can go to court, you can get your judgment. Where it becomes an issue is whether or not you actually enforce that. Uh, and here in Texas, you enforce an eviction judgment by requesting what we call a writ of possession. And the writ of possession is actually where the constable you know, oversees you and your staff or your workers uh, that you've hired, the removal of that person from the property. That's the actual act that is prohibited under the CDC eviction moratorium. Uh, so at this point, you know, there shouldn't be any more abatements out there at the justice court level. Uh, you should be able to get your judgments without any you know, uh, delay or halt from the judge. Now, there are special circumstances. There are some judges out there who choose to do their own thing. Uh, and if you are, you know, let me know and we can you know, address it as needed. Uh, but for now, because of what happened at the end of March, uh, you're able to proceed with your eviction cases. Uh, understand that there is a risk involved with that. Yep. And what we're seeing is very few tenants are actually providing these CDC uh, certificates. And I'll tell you why. This thing came out called rent relief, and I'm, I'm not going to go into a lot of the background about it. I'm just going to tell you how we're using it and what it's doing. So there was a lot of money that came to play that could be used to pay off back rent up to, it was 15 months, right, Daniel? Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, what we did and what we all started doing that knew about it is we started applying for this rent relief for every delinquent tenant, not just the ones that had been sitting that had filed these CDC orders that happened to be in courts who refused the cases or stayed the cases or whatever the case might have been, but for anyone who wasn't paying rent. We're still doing it now. If a tenant can't pay rent for month for May, the first thing we're going to do is try to get them to pay. And if they can't, we're going to go apply them for rent relief. And so, like in the last 30 days, I was telling Daniel right before we started, we've collected close to $200,000 in a month uh, from this Texas rent relief. And so it really worked out well because right as the courts lost the ability or the desire to hear these cases and make the determination on the challenges, we had rent relief come to play. And so most tenants who are struggling, their first thought is not to go do this CDC process. Their first thought is to apply for rent relief. And the vast majority of them qualify. It's actually a very easy process. We can help them with a lot of it. They have to agree to it. And we've only had a handful of tenants who don't want to apply for it. So we have a portfolio somewhere between 22 and 2300 properties. And of that, we have six tenants with residual balances older than 60 days old. And most of those are inherited tenants, tenants we were hired to remove. And so when we look at the statistics of where we are now compared to where we were six, eight, 10 months ago, we're pretty much back to normal. And so I'm glad we had the extended period of time where we could go file those cases and do the challenges and get the tenants out. But what we are finding right now is that the better path rather than eviction is to do the rent relief and to non-renew tenancies. And so we have non-renewed tenancies in bulk. Now, the other tactic that we've been using is violations. And so, you know, if you really need to remove a tenant who isn't paying or who is causing trouble 
generally you're going to have easy ways to be able to do that. You know, if, if somebody isn't maintaining their property, they're in breach of lease. If somebody has an unauthorized pet, they're in breach of lease. There's so many different things we can evict on. And most of the courts were okay hearing those cases on a tenant that had filed under the CDC, most. And so when we look at what's happened over the course of the last you know, 90 to 180 days, the vast majority of tenants who needed to get out or needed to catch up, that's already happened. Now, I will tell you that I've spoken with others in the industry and not everyone is having the same results. Not everyone is seeing the same thing. And so don't expect that what we're seeing at our company is what you can expect from every property manager statewide. I can't tell you how many times I post on Facebook about a rent relief payment or about filing and someone in the business writes back and says, whoa, how do I sign up for that? How do I apply a tenant for that? And so, you know, it goes back to making sure whether you're operating in my market, whether you have properties you're managing in your own market, whether you have a property manager in another market, make sure you're staying up to date on what's happening. I had someone call me the other day because they have a friend who was really sick with COVID and had been out of work for 10 months. And I had them apply this individual in their state for the rent relief program. Texas is not the only state that has this program and they're not the only state paying out big money to catch people up. And so it, it definitely has been great to have that avenue to be able to use as we're more hesitant in doing these CDC challenges. We also are finding that as time is passing and more and more jobs are coming available, and now especially with the unemployment piece changing, where people are not so incentivized to stay home on unemployment, we're seeing a lot more tenants have new employment. And so that has helped significantly as well. Anything you wanna to add to that, Daniel? Uh, yeah, the, the great thing about the rent relief program, and I think this is important that you guys know, is that this is a program that you as a property owner, a landlord, can apply for. Uh, one of the issues that the initial programs that came out when we were first trying to address the pandemic was we were placing all the responsibility on the tenant to take an affirmative action to apply. And they weren't doing that. Uh, but with the rent relief program, you can take that affirmative step and get the process started. And that is one way you know, to show the courts, if you do end up a court, that you're trying to be cooperative and helpful with your tenants and that you resorted to an eviction for non-payment kind of as a last resort in these days, is that you attempted mm -hmm. to get them funding and the tenant, <clears throat> for whatever reason, because it does require some action on their part, chose not to. So that's the great thing about the rent relief is one, it does pay money and they pay it pretty quickly. Uh, and two, is that you can start the process as the landlord. Uh, you don't have to sit back and wait and know, know for sure whether or not your tenant's doing anything to get you rent paid. Uh, so that's a great thing about that. And the other thing that uh, as this program has come out and the money's flowing, uh, they do seem to be pay special attention to cases where you have filed an eviction. There's a pending eviction. There's a threat of somebody being evicted for non-payment. Uh, it seems to me they're being addressed pretty quickly. Uh, so just know that program's out there uh, and that you as the landlord uh, can take that affirmative step and get paid, which again is great. You know, some of you guys have had several months without rent and receiving a nice payment uh, is very, very great to the bottom line. So keep that program in mind when you're out there. 
A hundred percent. And, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure you know about this rent relief program is the tenant has to be occupying the property. So you can't kick the tenant out and then go back and file. The tenant has to be actively occupying the property. I have had a couple that we applied for the rent relief in the beginning when it was moving very slow. The tenant since vacated and we still got paid. I also had a couple where they overpaid. So as with anything government, there can be some room for error in there, but do keep in mind that if you want to go back and claim back rents, keep the tenant in there until you have that money in hand. That's just my recommendation. So and it's from a legal standpoint, oh, and from ahead. a legal standpoint, uh, you know, the court's going to ask you whether or not you're participating in this program or whether or not there's money coming and they'll, you know, uh, take that into account when they make any sort of decision on your case. Uh, so they are, courts are aware of this program. They know what's out there and they'll encourage you to participate in that program. Yeah. And by nature, by the tenant applying for this program, they've satisfied that term of their CDC, uh, you know, uh, certificate. So we need to keep that in mind as well. So let's end with where we are today. And this is really what brings us all here today is to find out what the update is, the court cases that are going through the system. Do we think it's going to be extended? Daniel, tell me what you know and then tell me what you think. Okay. All righty. Well, the CDC uh, eviction moratorium gets headlines all the time. Anytime there's a court ruling uh, that invalidates it or declares it to be unconstitutional or invalid. Okay. So in the past several months, we've seen quite a few of those cases come across you know, the internet and the news. And that is all part of a you know, series of cases that are being filed throughout the country uh, challenging it. And there are at least you know, six different reported cases out there. Uh, you know, some on the side of, yes, uh, the CDC can be enforced. Uh, and the other side, which we're more interested in, are the cases that say, no, it's an overstep of the powers of the CDC, the statute, the Constitution, and that uh, we should not be bound by this. Okay. So as a litigator, again, this creates you know a whole lot of room for argument and understanding and interpretation. Uh, and so what we have out there are competing cases. And the way our judicial system is set up is when there's competing cases out there, ultimately it works its way up to the Supreme Court of the United States and they make a decision and a final and absolute decision on whether or not this is valid. So everyone's out there on the landlord side, on the tenant side, litigating these cases in hopes of creating this conflict, which is out there, okay? And so what is out there? Uh, like I said, there's six reported cases. Uh, the first one to kind of catch you no know, nationwide attention was right here in Texas. Uh, and that decision was issued by the Eastern District here in Texas, the Tyler Division. And that was the Turkle decision. And the Turkle decision was a ruling in favor of landlords. Uh, in that case, you know, a group of landlords uh, challenged you know, whether or not the CDC eviction moratorium was valid under the United States Constitution. Uh, and the judge who heard that case at the district court level uh, reached a conclusion that uh, the basis for which the United States government was claiming they could do it, which was the Commerce Clause, uh, didn't provide them with the authority to invoke such a protection as a CDC eviction moratorium. Uh, and that was because under the Commerce Clause, there has to be some sort of evidence uh, shown to the court that there is a uh, effect on interstate commerce that needs to be regulated by the government, the federal government. 
Uh, and that's usually talking about when goods cross state lines, you know, things of that nature. And at issue in the CDC eviction moratorium was the right to possession of property. Uh, and property by nature, you no know, real property, doesn't move. It is you no know, in place. Uh, and because of that, you know, that's primarily left to the states to uh, enforce and to regulate, uh, which is why these eviction cases are filed in state courts. They're not filed in federal courts. They're filed you know, by the justice courts. Uh, so using that reasoning, you know, uh, the judge in that case, the Turkle decision, decided government, you don't have the constitutional authority to uh, enforce this CDC eviction moratorium. So it's invalid. Okay. Uh, which you no know, caught all the headlines. That was the big you no know, six-inch headline across the internet websites and on the newspapers and on your local news stations. Uh, however, that ruling you know, was limited in the sense that one, it was a district court ruling in the Eastern District of Texas, so its you know uh, effect nationwide wasn't going to be much more than what it was there in the Eastern District. Uh, second. Uh, the judge itself limited the ruling to just the plaintiffs in that case. And because of that, you know, uh, the federal government didn't challenge it right away. They didn't ask for a stay of enforcement, which we'll talk about here in another case uh, that came out more recently. Uh, so that case is currently on appeal uh, to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans. Uh, right now, the schedule is everyone submitting their briefs. Uh, which not only include the parties, but also everyone else is interested, you know, uh, property management associations, tenant associations, uh, state organizations as well are following briefs. Uh, so there may not be a ruling on that case for a while. Okay. So that was the first case that grabbed the attention in the headlines, which was a good decision uh, for us, the landlords, because it allowed us to walk into a courtroom and argue, see, the CDC eviction moratorium isn't valid. Uh, so we should be able to proceed even though it's still uh, perhaps enforceable in other jurisdictions, okay? Then most recently, which was another positive case uh, for us, was the Skyworks case out of um, the District of Columbia. And in that case, the issue was whether or not the statute that authorized the CDC to impose regulations and programs uh, to uh, prevent the transmission of a, a disease uh, allowed them to do an eviction moratorium such as this, okay? And this is the issue that has been litigated the most uh, as to whether or not this is a valid uh, exercise of government power is that in that case, they reviewed the statute and the statute, again, granted the CDC certain powers to do things. And what those powers were is that uh, they can make and enforce such regulations as in their judgment are necessary to prevent the introduction, transmission, or spread of chemical diseases from foreign countries into the states or from one state to the other. Uh, they may provide for such inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination, destruction of animals or articles found to be so infected or contaminated as to be sources of dangerous infection to human beings. And, and this is where the litigation was, other measures, as in their judgment, may be necessary. So what the litigants on the side of the landlords and the property management company are saying is that, okay, we see in the statute it says you have to take any other measures as in your judgment. However, we have this long list of items that it says you can do. 
So the argument is your other judgment must include things along those lines. It can't be something completely out of the ordinary that's not you know, even within the realm of possibilities based on that list. And so what the court in uh, the District of Columbia decided was, yeah, I accept that interpretation of it. You're limited. You do not have you know, this unavoidable uh, you know, power to do whatever you wanted. And so it struck down uh, the CDC eviction moratorium and it actually vacated it on a nationwide level, which was a great decision uh, for landlords because it said, we're not limiting this, this to the District of Columbia, it's gonna apply throughout the country. So landlords, you know, your eviction cases can be heard and uh, conducted without any concern about whether or not you're in violation or potential violation of the CDC eviction moratorium. Uh, and because of that, uh, because that had such great implication potentially, uh, the United States government immediately uh, filed an appeal of the case uh, to the circuit court and also filed what they called a request for a stay of enforcement. Uh, and basically what a stay of enforcement is, is an injunction uh, that prevents anybody from using the opinion of this district court judge to take any sort of action. And that uh, request was granted uh, by the judge. And so now, uh, while that opinion is out there, uh, its enforcement or ability to be applied to uh, real-world situations is on hold until the circuit court makes a decision on that. And that decision was just entered back, uh, you know, a few weeks ago. So it's very, very in the early stages, and we won't likely have an issue from that circuit until much later, which, you know, uh, is along the same timeline almost of the Fifth Circuit cases. Uh, so those are the two big cases at the district court level that are pro-landlord. Uh, uh, there is another decision, uh, the Tiger Lily decision, which is also pro-landlord. And the great thing about that one is that it's actually a circuit court opinion. Uh, it has already been appealed uh, from a district court. And in that decision, along the same lines as the court in the District of Columbia, they ruled that the CDC doesn't have that authority uh, based on the statute. Uh, they're limited to that uh, no realm of possibilities you know, promulgated by the list of items listed in the statute. Uh, so the great thing about that one is it's a six court opinion. So in the level of the judicial system, it's a higher court. It's one step below the Supreme Court of Texas. Okay, uh, So we have that decision out there. So those are the three favorable decisions you know, for landlords uh, that you, if need be, uh, can use in court. Uh, you know, you, you can argue that based on these opinions, that if your judge is questioning whether or not they should be enforcing the CDC, uh, you can argue that no, they shouldn't because it's not valid. Okay. Uh, but because this is litigation, as I mentioned initially, there's opinions on both sides of the argument. Okay. So there's three other opinions, uh, you know, the Brown versus Azar decision out of the district court in Georgia. And then there's the Chambliss decision uh, out of the Western District of Monroe, which is also in the Fifth Circuit, uh, that ruled the exact opposite way. They say in the CDC, based on the language that they can use any other measures, is you know all encompassing. And so they have a valid right to challenge, uh, enforce the CDC eviction moratorium. So those opinions run contrary, and those are the cases that if you are in litigation that you're going to hear you no know, tenants and their attorneys argue saying, no, it's valid. These are the opinions in support of it. 
and you should rule that this landlord shouldn't be allowed to proceed because we are a covered person, okay? Uh, the opinion out of Louisiana is also in the Fifth Circuit, uh, so it's right there with Turkle on appeal, and both cases will likely be decided you know, at the same time uh, because it involves basically the same issues. Uh, while the legal argument in Turkle is one of a constitutional argument, and the one in uh, Chambliss has to do with a statutory interpretation, uh, the overall effect is whether or not the CDC eviction moratorium is valid. Uh, so that will likely be you know, addressed in one opinion, I'd imagine. Uh, so that is all setting us up to what's going to happen now that we're towards the end of May. You know, the CDC declaration is scheduled to expire by its own terms on June 30th of 2021. Uh, what's going to happen? Well, for those that have been following this, you know, this first came into play back in September of 2020, and it's been extended a couple of times. Uh, so everyone's concerned, well, will there be another extension? Okay. And uh, here, this is strictly my opinion on this, uh, based on, you know, the message being uh, relayed by the president uh, regarding how effective the vaccine rollout has been how well the economy is recovering, things of that nature, I'm thinking that it's not likely to be extended, okay? Uh, because if you recall, uh, you had talked about initially being able to gather in groups because of the vaccination rollout you know, by July 4th. Well, July 4th is you know, four days after the expiration date of the CDC moratorium at this point. Uh, so I think that would lead me to believe that it's not going to be extended. Uh, plus, with all these conflicting opinions out there, I think there's uh, sufficient challenge out there to take into account and in not extending it as well. So while by no means do I have any inside information or have 100% uh, guarantee that's not being extended uh, based on what I'm seeing uh, from the White House as well as in the courts, uh, I am you know, the opinion that this is not going to be extended past June 30th of 2021. I agree. I, I that's think kind that of where if they do extend it, I think that the legal challenge that's going to mount and the number of cases that are going to be filed against that extension would be just astronomical. And right. in reality, I think it would it would set back the progress we've made and, and what their whole goal was with this in the beginning. And now that they've got this rent relief program out there, I think they might keep that around longer. But the truth is they've got to get these jobs filled and they've got to start focusing on other things and making it seem like we're back to business as usual. So I completely agree. Right. Well, I really can't thank you enough for coming on and giving us that thorough update. I'm cautiously optimistic that we're going to have good news going into July and that things are going to continue on this positive trajectory. And you know, really at the end of the day, I think that it's safe to say, regardless of what happens moving forward, that we really are truly just about past all of this from a financial standpoint as landlords. And that at the end of the day is really what matters because it's it's been very difficult for many people, especially in other states. And so I'm, I'm glad to see that there's been some traction and some movement. And I'm very, very thankful to be operating in Texas, who I think overall has handled this just incredibly well. Yes, I would agree because uh, I have colleagues in other states and they are not in the same condition or state of mind 
uh, as it comes to handling these eviction cases and the obligation to be paying rents. Uh, so Texas was you know, ahead of it. And sometimes we do get the negative headline that Texas just disobeys the federal laws. And that's not the case. Uh, we are obeying the federal laws uh, as allowed by the judicial system. And, you know, it's out there. It's not just evict everybody in Texas. That's just a, a misunderstanding of what we're doing here. So I'd like to end on one note, and this is a, I'm going to modify your question, David, and just tweak it just a little bit. What pieces of the CARES Act, as it pertains to mortgages and investors, are still in effect right now that we need to be aware of? Okay. Uh, there are two uh, pieces that, that I come across primarily in dealing with the CARES Act. Uh, one is if you are still personally, you know, you receiving a forbearance uh on your property for your mortgage uh the cares act prohibits you from going forward with evictions against tenants for non-payment okay so if you're still receiving a forbearance on your loan the cares act still applies to you the other issue which is the hot issue for my clients is how much notice is provided or is required to be provided on a notice to vacate uh, if you recall you know, when the CARES Act was written, uh, it came out and said, after July 25th of 2020, you have to give a 30-day notice to vacate. Well, we're well past that date. Uh, we're coming up almost a year anniversary, it seems like here. And some judges and even the HUD website itself still lists that if you are a CARES Act property, meaning you have a federally-backed mortgage of some sort or participate in a housing assistance program, that you're required to give a 30-day notice to vacate, even though uh, that requirement on its own, if you read the statute, only applied to notices given after July 25th when it first came into play. So there are judges out there, and it's no no case-by-case -case basis as to which judge you get, will allow you to proceed with a three-day notice, others that are required a 30-day notice. Uh, now, I'm not aware of any opinions that have reached a level of a court of appeals in Texas uh, or of a district court action because, again, state court evictions are handled by state courts as to give us a definite answer as to what notice is required. Uh, all I can say, if you want to be safe on it, you know, give a 30-day notice. Uh, if you want to be more aggressive, you can give a three-day notice to vacate, but understand there's a risk involved, and the risk is either at the JP court level or at the county court level if the case gets appealed, that the judge is of the opinion a 30-day notice was required and you'd have to start all over again. Uh, so those are the two remnants of the CARES Act uh, that I still see in my practice uh, being an issue of concern for my clients. Us as well, same thing that we're saying too. Well, Daniel, thank you so much again. Everyone, I've got Daniel's email here at the bottom right in case you have any follow-up questions for him. Otherwise, just thank you all for joining us. We'll continue to keep you apprised of any changes. I'm sure we'll get back together the beginning of July once we see what transpires with the CDC moratorium and any other changes to rent relief and everything else that we're dealing with. And if you have any questions in the meantime, you can always email us as well. Otherwise, thank you all for being here, Daniel. Thank you again. All right, thank you. All right, take care. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.